seated. Thanks, John. All right. As you're seated, go ahead and open your Bibles to that passage with me, 1 Samuel 8. That's awesome. Um, all right, 1 Samuel 8. Let's look at the passage, Julie. Uh, so this was a, a six-flight week for me. Um, meaning I sat on an airplane six times this week. And um, there's, there's two different kinds of announcements. There's the, you know, the stewardess announcement at the beginning. I still don't know what they say during that announcement because I never listen. And then there's the announcement type after you've been sitting on the runway for about an hour waiting to take off. And the pilot comes on and says, we've been delayed because air traffic control won't let it. And you're like super attentive to that latter announcement because you're really frustrated. All right, so this is the announcement. This is the second class announcement here. The one that I want you to be super attentive to, not because you're frustrated, but because you're going to need to know this announcement. Uh, Easter's coming uh, quickly. And uh, we're going to do things a little bit different Easter weekend. Um, first thing we're going to do, we're going to uh, try our hand at our first Good Friday service this Easter weekend. So uh, Good Friday night, uh, we'll gather in here for a time of reflection on Jesus' death on the cross and uh, uh, hopefully whet our appetites some for Easter Sunday. So go ahead and flag that on your family calendar, whoever's the calendar keeper among you. Uh, Good Friday evening, we'll be together. Uh, much like our Christmas Eve service, we'll keep it to an hour, but we are gonna provide some childcare for the littles. This will be a bit of a solemn uh, time of prayer and scripture reading, so we'll have some childcare provided love for you to be here. And then Easter Sunday, we're going to shift our service times. Uh, the, the first service adjust a little bit to provide a gap in the middle for us to do brunch and uh, sing together as a whole church. So we'll do that uh, down in the gym. So just be watching announcements for that. And uh, we want you to feel really comfortable inviting people to join with us on Easter Sunday. All right, this morning, we're going to continue looking at this idea of the rise and fall of kings uh, with 1 Samuel 8, the decision among the people to appoint a king. This chapter last week, I uh, said, you know, if you're summarizing chapter 7, you would summarize it under the header of remembrance. It's a chapter about remembering. This week, uh, 1 Samuel 8 is a chapter about decisions. The decisions that we make and the impact of those decisions. And just as a front door to this passage, it really is stunning to think of the, uh, the impact, the weight of certain decisions in shaping the trajectory of life. It's even more paralyzing to think that we make most of those decisions super early in life, like in our 20s. Uh, who you're going to marry, what school you're going to attend, the vocation that you pursue, when or if you'll have kids— we, we make these decisions, and then in many ways, these decisions make us for the rest of our lives. We make the decisions, and then the decisions make us for the rest of our lives. This morning's chapter is about one of the most critical decisions that the nation of Israel makes. And in many ways, all of the Old Testament story, particularly the first and second books, uh, are the outworking of this decision, this singular decision. They make a decision, and then the decision makes the nation. And this morning, I want to frame this around one big idea from 1 Samuel 8, and it is this. Sometimes the worst thing for you is to get what you want. Sometimes the worst thing for you is to get what you want. 
Notice the decision that is made among the people, what they want. It's said specifically in verse 19. Though it seems, as we're reading or listening to Julie read that text, it seems that the people have already made up their minds of what they want much earlier in the chapter, but it's made explicit in verse 19. They say, we want a king. I want you to envision 1 Samuel 8 this morning, kind of like the, the hidden space behind the, 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 the wedding ceremony, uh, the hidden space behind the first day of school. This is the, the, the scene that's going to give us a bit of a heart behind the decisions or the outcomes that, that play out. They want a king, and we're going to see the king they get coming in the future chapters. But what is the heart behind this request? Why does the nation want a king? Let me give you two reasons um, from the passage. Why, why do they want a king? First, it seems that they're in a bad place and they want to get out. What's the motive behind this request for a king? First, they're in a bad place and they want to get out. Notice back again in verses 1 to 3. We have what is an eerily parallel scene for us, of one that we've already seen in this book. Samuel grows old. He appoints sons as judges over Israel. And we're introduced to two kids who did not walk in his, being Samuel's, ways. We're told at the end of verse 3, they turned to dishonest prophet. They took bribes and they perverted justice. This sounds eerily familiar, doesn't it? We've already been introduced to a leader, Eli, who had two wicked sons who were punished for their rebellion. And in a startlingly parallel reality, here again we see one who grows old and the next generation rises up and do not walk, uh, does not walk in the ways of their father. We're going to see this pattern frame much of the Old Testament. A faithful ruler is going to rise onto the scene, but after his death his kids are not going to follow that godly pattern. They're going to turn from the Lord and pursue wickedness. So this pattern that we see in Eli and here again repeated in Samuel is a microcosm of what's going to play out in the nation as a whole. Generations that are going to come that are not going to walk in the ways of the Lord. We've got three mentions of the sins of Samuel's sons here in the text. I, it seems like these are united into one, particularly with the monetary implications here in verse 3. They dishonest prophet, they took bribes, and they perverted justice. They, uh, we saw earlier uh, sexual sin and then kind of sticking the fork in the pot and taking what is theirs in Eli's sons. Here we see them twisting, distorting, taking uh, dishonest gain. As a result, the nation was broken. Notice that these are uh, the leaders of the people. They're judges. And the nation sees that uh, the leaders are not worthy men. They're not doing what is right. And therefore, the future of the nation is quite bleak. We could just kind of step outside of the text for a moment and consider that. I mean, we think about uh, in government, in business, in sports. If the leaders are corrupt, you're in a real bad place, right? Um, I'm thinking uh, 2007, uh, there was an NBA official uh, who was, uh, was prosecuted uh, by the FBI because he was betting on the games that he was officiating, Right? So he's betting on the games and then, you know, betting on the spread of the games. And then he was officiating to the outcomes that he, that he, okay. I mean, at that point, like why even play the game, right? If the dude making the calls is corrupt, let's just throw in the towel. And this is seemingly what the nation is 
looking at. They're looking at leaders who are corrupt. And so they say, we've got to find a way out. Might summarize this motive. Hey, I'm in a bad place and I want out with with a singular word, escape. Why why does the nation choose a king? Because they want to escape from something that's busted. They're in a bad place and they want out. Now, the escape that's mentioned here is the request for a king. And I want, want to nuance a little bit. I don't see evidence in the passage or throughout the history books of the Old Testament that their desire for a king was inherently wrong. Like, in fact, we've seen a pattern of God using humans to demonstrate his leadership over people. He does it through priests. He's doing it through prophets. He's most recently done it through judges. God is not threatened by human leaders. In fact, he uses human leaders. He's organized his world in such a way that, they, that he would work through them. So I don't see an argument in the text that like, the, the monarchy is flawed any more than any other system of human government. Like all of these other forms, however, they rise and fall on the basis of the quality of leaders that are put in place. Back in Deuteronomy, Moses actually anticipated the activity of 1 Samuel 8. The issue isn't that they're selecting a king, but he warns, if you put a king in place, you better make sure he's a good one. You better make sure he's a godly one. This is Deuteronomy 17. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and take possession of it, live in it and say, I'll set a king over me like the nations around me. You're going to appoint over you a king that the Lord your God chooses. So here, the pick one, that, that, that walks in God's ways that the Lord has or, ordained. The problem seems to be not the fact that they, uh, that they want a king, but to borrow from verse 8 in our passage here, their choice of a king was a rejection of God's kingship over them. There was a way to pursue human leaders in such a way that they become a representative of God's leadership of the people. And then there's a way to choose a king that says, God, we don't want you, so give us a leader. And this seems to be what the people are doing. Verse 8, they're doing the same thing to you. This is God speaking that they've done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day. They're abandoning me and worshiping other gods. So their choice of a king was a rejection of God's leadership over them. And their desire for a king seems to be parallel to the desire for the ark that we saw in chapter 4. We've just come on the heels, 1 Samuel 7, of a chapter where people are contrite. They seek the Lord in humility and repentance, and they make decisions. But here again in chapter 8, just like in chapter 4, we see a seeming knee-jerk reaction to choose a king with no mention of contrition, no mention of prayer, no mention of them seeking the Lord for this decision. So to press the point a bit and try to provide some language for us uh, today, the decision to pursue a king seems to be an example of prayerless reaction rather than a response to purposeful prayer. Prayerless reaction rather than purposeful prayer. Have you, you been there in your decision-making processes? No, I have. You find yourself in a pickle, either of your own making or the sin of others, and you manufacture a solution that seems to make sense to human wisdom. Think of how many times 
you pray after you've already made your mind up of what you're going to do, right? Prayerless reaction to hard things versus purposeful prayer that positions you in humble response to God. But it's not the only, uh, only motive. So they're in a bad place and they want out and they react. Secondly, they saw what others had and they wanted that. They were in a bad place and they wanted out. Secondly, they see what others had and they want that. We got twice repeated. So in your, in your text, verses 4 and 5, the elders of Israel gathered together, went to Samuel at Ramah. They said, look, <laughs> look you're old. What a compliment. Thanks, boys. Uh, your sons don't walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us, the same as the other nations have. So there in verse 5, you have the, the phrase, the same as the other nations have. Verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, after his warning, we've got to have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. So the motive gets repeated twice, so you know it's a big deal. Like the other nations have. Hey, in our prayerless reaction, let's grab what seemingly makes sense in the broader context of the world in which we live. It makes sense that they would have this as a motive. I mean, a kingless nation is really odd. Uh, I mean, what nation doesn't have some human figure providing leadership? A nation without a king is just weird. But God had positioned this to be intentionally weird. He wanted his people to stand out. Like, think about it. A people who would thrive without a king? That would mean they have a greater king to point to. This would be a really good thing. But the lack of, a lack of a tangible king meant that Israel was grappling for somebody to point to who could lead them, give them peace, care, leadership. It was difficult to see God's leadership in the same way as a human king. And so, as we're prone to do, when you need a fix to a problem, you grab what's seemingly working for others. So they reach for a king as a presumably easy answer to their issue. So escape, and then second frame I would give is envy. Escape and envy. It seems like some other people have something that we don't have, and I want that. I'm in a bad place, and I want out. Escape. I see what others have, and I want that. Envy. Let's commercial break for a moment for application. Consider how these two motives inform our choices every day. I see what other people have, and I want that. I, I need to experience and feel God's leadership, or I'm in a bad place, and I want out. I'll give you, give you three quick examples. Singleness. Think about it. Escape. Man, I feel lonely. I feel overrun with lust. So I'm going to escape and take whatever I can by whatever means necessary, regardless of whether this is a good choice or not. Or envy. How many times are singles pressed into decisions? Uh, they see other people getting married. They, they see this playing out. And I, I see the good that they have, and I want that. Think about side hustles. Uh, the things that we do, to, particularly as men, to be able to drop the, well, I'm just busy language. Think of how often our side hustles are just an escape from having to attend to the issues of our soul. 
If I'm perpetually busy, I don't actually have to sit with God and think about my heart. Or envy. That lake house and sizable retirement funds does look awfully appealing. Or think about when you hear a sermon with people pressing you towards risk, like fostering and adopting, moving across the country to labor, as Heather's doing, for the sake of the gospel. Man, escape. If I fill my time with other thoughts, I don't have to attend to the ways that God may want me to leverage my excess to bless others. Escape or envy. The risk of moving to an unreached people or caring for unwanted kids almost assuredly will not allow me the time or the margin to keep up with the Joneses. Sometimes the worst thing for you is to get what you want, particularly if the getting what you want is derived from a motive of escape or envy. Now there's a second question, I think it's a more important question, baked into the passage this morning. So why did they want a king? Here's, why did God give them what they want? Even if he knew it was bad for them. And then, I mean, we could ask it in application for, why does God sometimes give you what you want? Even though he knows it might be bad for you. Three reasons in the text. First, because our bad choices do not negate God's sovereign purposes. Because our bad choices do not negate God's sovereign purposes. Sometimes when we think about the story of the Bible, um, I am, perhaps you are, tempted to read it as if these choices come to God the way our kids' choices come to us as parents. That our choices stomp God. That in some way he's perplexed in heaven working to invent a new solution to the problem of human sin, and derive a fix for whatever problems you've created with your mess. It's important to remember that God is not caught off guard by human sin, nor is he caught off guard by the choices of 1 Samuel 8. In fact, before 1 Samuel 8, he's built in provisions for this choice. While they wanted a king like the nation's, God had made provisions that they would not appoint a king like the nations. A godly king could take this that had been from impure motives and, and could, could still lead and care and provide for the people. In fact, in 1 Samuel 12, Samuel, uh, there's a seeming celebration of the king. This could be a really good thing. 1 Samuel 12, verses 13 to 15. Now here's the king you've chosen, the one you've requested. Look, this is the king that the Lord has placed over you. If you fear the Lord, worship and obey him. And if you don't rebel against the Lord's command, then both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. However, if you disobey the Lord and rebel against his commands, the Lord's hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. So while we might think, well, this is, a, this is a bad decision for the nation, God has built in provisions whereby bad choices can be funneled and redirected to be actually good for the people. In Deuteronomy 17, before the appointment of uh, the king, again, anticipating what would soon come, 
There are clear instructions of the type of person you should put in this role. This is Deuteronomy 17, 15 to 20. Don't set a foreigner over you or one who is not of your people. However, he must not acquire many horses for himself and send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. For the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver or gold for himself. Now, you're supposed to read this in light of what you know to be true about people like David and Solomon and Saul that we're getting ready to study. When he is seated on the royal throne, he's to write a copy of this instruction for himself on the scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It's to remain with him. He's to read from it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all his words and instructions, and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. He will not turn away from his command to the right or to the left, and he and his sons will continue reigning many years in Israel. So God, in his great kindness, says you're going you're gonna to appoint a leader, and this is the kind of leader you should seek. And if you don't seek this kind of leader, things are going to unravel. But if you do, I can take what you purposed for, for, for impure motives, and I can use it for your, your good. Friends, be reminded, God is not surprised by your sin or your impure motives. Like a good parent who tells his kids, hey, I know what's best for you, but I also know you're not going to do that. So when you make these bad choices, I want to provide some clear direction, some clear moral instruction for you as to how you can get back on the right path. Here's what you need to do next. Your story likely testifies to this same reality. You, like me, have likely made some bad decisions along the way. You, in escape and envy, have chosen to give yourself to false gods, only to see the Lord and his grace give you a path to move forward. You've seen him bring good from your folly. His kindness is seen in taking something that is broken and bringing it back around for good. Isn't it encouraging to be reminded that your sin doesn't stomp God? Your sin doesn't stomp God. It doesn't negate his sovereign purposes, nor do the choices that are made in 1 Samuel 8. Secondly, why does God give them what they want? Because he wants to win the hearts of his people. Because he wants to win the hearts of his people. Why does God sometimes give you what you want, even if it's bad for you? Because he wants to win your heart. Notice in verses 6 to 8, they said, give us a king. Samuel considered their demand wrong, so he prayed to the Lord. The Lord told him, Listen to this people and everything they say to you. They've not rejected you, but they've rejected me as their king. They're doing the same thing to you that they've done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day. They're abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Samuel knew the wrongheadedness of the path that the nation had chosen. Their decision was a reflection of three realities that Samuel points to in these verses. They'd rejected God, they'd abandoned God, and they were worshiping other gods. They were living out the generational patterns of rebellion that go all the way back to the garden. And the people won't listen to Samuel. And so now God tells Samuel to listen to the people. God wants them to see the implications of the choices that they've made. 
and he knows, for you and for them, that it's often the case that we would not awaken to the rebellion of our idolatry without experiencing the implications of it. He would allow them to make a mess of it if it would lead them to return and worship the true and living God. Again, parenting is a good illustration of this, particularly with older kids. There are times when we say, if that's what you want, but I'm going to pray that it's such a miserable experience for you that it causes you to awaken to your rebellion. Prodigal living is a means by which men and women hit bottom in the hopes that their hearts are drawn to return back to genuine worship. The same is true in your patterns of escape and envy. Often early in our lives, it's far more overt forms. Here, think Romans 1, God gave them over to the desires of their heart. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's worthy forevermore. So why why does the Lord sometimes give you over to the desire of your heart? to prove the impotence of those false gods that you are worshiping. And he knows you're not going to get there without experiencing some, uh, some, some slop in the pig trough, right? Most of us aren't going to get there other ways. He allows our rebellion to bring them up to a point of awareness that following him is actually best. But, but sadly, you don't outgrow that in the more overt prodigal living of your early years. This is true uh, of maturing Christians throughout all of our lives. We're prone to escape and envy, to bad choices, in perhaps more acceptable ways. Our finances, they don't provide the hope that we think they might. And in ways of God's kindness, he allows our flimsy trust in temporal gods to expose our breakneck pursuit of all things this worldly and to orient us to something beyond the sun. Like the angel wrestling with Jacob in Genesis, God the Father will wrestle us into submission to prove to our hearts that his ways are really best. Bad choices are meant to be a rubber band in your life that snap you back to worship of the true and living God. Gorilla glue last week, rubber bands this week, okay? Pull out and then it snaps you back, catches your attention, and causes you to say, yes, he is the one that I worship. And then lastly, uh, why does God give them what what they want, even though it's going to prove bad for them? Because he wants us people, he wants us to trust his word. He wants us to trust his word. Because he knows that our bad choices don't negate his sovereign purposes. Because he really wants to win our hearts, our love, our affection. And then, and and this is closely, this is a closely related idea. If he wins our affection, then we trust his word. Notice back in the text, verses 9 all the way down to 17. They play out the implications of, uh, of a king who, who doesn't walk in God's ways. They reveal a, a very true pattern for all of life, and that is that sin is often a consequence for sin. 
sin becomes a consequence for sin. So that they, in impure motives, appoint a king to rule over them. And then the outcome of this is just a cascade of, of human failure and folly among this king. The warnings in verses 9 to 17 have led many commentators to suggest that this passage had to be a late addition. Like somebody had to come back after all the kings had ruled, after Solomon's reign, and rewrite this paragraph into the script because it's exactly how the story is going to play out. I think that's unnecessary. I'm not convinced that that assumption uh, is required. It seems like, I mean, one, God is telling Samuel this is what's going to happen, so we have a word from the Lord. And it seems like this is what you would expect from a human king, right? This is what kings do. This is the, the pattern. So God, in his kindness, warns the people through Samuel. The four times repeated word in verses 9 to 17 is the word take. Is the word take. What's, what's a king going to do? You think he's going to give peace, protection, deliverance, but he, what he's actually going to do is he's going to take. And we could have a whole soapbox aside about that being the nature of sin. You think sin gives, but sin actually takes. This is what you would predict. If you want a king, remember, he's going to take your sons and your daughters. He's going to take your best fields. He's going to take your money. We've got a word for this. It's called slavery. They're choosing to go back to Egypt. This is the warning. They're choosing to to voluntarily submit to the type of slavery that the Lord had just delivered them from. Again, full soapbox sermon. Isn't that exactly what we're doing when we sin? We're voluntarily submitting to the yoke of slavery that Jesus Christ has delivered us from. Now, we've got to make an assumption here. Um, You hear this warning, and there's this awareness, like if if the nation, if Samuel's relaying this to the people, I mean, nobody in their right mind is choosing verses 9 to 17, are they? Like, I mean, even the most hard-hearted person around is like, okay, I'm going to appoint somebody that's going to crush my kids and my means of provision and take all my money. The only way you move into that decision is saying something like, that won't happen to me. I hear it, but that won't happen to me. I love this. We have this book in in the back. It's kind of a uh, tool that the church when I was in seminary gave to missionaries that were going, uh, this is a Puritan paperback, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Defenses. Uh, and he writes in there that Satan's kind of primary defense or primary activity is, uh, uh, is to present the bait and hide the hook. Right? The primary activity is to present the bait and hide the hook. Same, same idea. Uh, to show something and then for you to say, I'm not going to get caught there. I'm not going to fall there. I'll read from uh, the opening chapter. Many long to be meddling with the murdering morsels of sin. What great alliteration as well. Which nourish... Many long to be meddling with the murdering morsels of sin, which nourish not, but rend and consume the belly and the soul that receives them. Many eat on earth what they digest in hell. Sin's murdering morsels will deceive those who devour them. Adam's apple was a bitter sweet. Esau's bowl of stew was a bitter sweet. The Israelites' quails a bitter sweet. Jonathan's honey a bitter sweet. 
After the meal is ended, then comes the reckoning. Men must not think that he can dine and dance with the devil and then sup with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven to feed upon the poison of asps, and yet the viper's tongue should not slay them. It's not that we're not aware of the hooks or the murdering morsels of sin. But as these verses, as this passage demonstrates, we know the inherent danger and yet we choose it anyway, thinking that won't be my plight. We know the inherent danger of storing up treasures in this world, pursuing the wrong person in marriage, relational bitterness to a fellow brother or sister. And yet we go there anyway. Satan presents the bait and hides the hook. Uh, Friends, would we be reminded from 1 Samuel 8 that God is superintending his world such that the patterns of sowing and reaping are fixed. You may take nibbles of the bait without feeling the hook for a time, but invariably it will get you. And in getting you, It's a warning to all the rest of us of the fixed nature of this process. It teaches us that you better take God at his word. I probably ought to listen to God the next time. This can be applied to singleness and bad relationships. It can be applied to side hustles and the grind, applied to risk and sacrifice. Might we be reminded that escape and envy have a hidden hook that will catch us. And then the, the passage ends with a, with a note of warning, verse 18. When that day comes, when the hook catches you, when he's taking and taking and taking, when you're back in slavery, this time of your own choosing, you're going to cry out for a king. I'm sorry, you're going to cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord's not going to answer you on that day. People refuse to listen to Samuel. No, we've got to have a king over us. Be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go before us, and fight our battles. There's again a soapbox sermon on those three phrases. That's what we're looking to send to provide for us. Samuel listened to all the people's words and then repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel. Appoint a king. And then Samuel and the men of Israel said, each of you go back to your own city. Notice the the stark pain in verse 18. There's a day coming. You're going to cry out because of this king that you've chosen, but I am not going to immediately come to your aid. Again, uh, God's pattern here is akin to the, the, the parent who says, I'm going to let my kid cry it out. I'm not running to their aid based on every whimper. God says to you and me and our sinful pursuits, there are times I'm going to let you cry it out. I'm going to let you experience the brokenness that comes from your waywardness. Why? Because God is playing the long game to win the hearts of his people. He's playing the long game with the nation as a whole. And he's playing the long game with your heart as well. The process of moving through the progression of Romans 8 from predestined to sanctified to glorified takes time. But praise God, he is not in a hurry with you. He's patient, long-suffering. The provision for your sinful choices has already been made through Christ Jesus. You, friends, are not under the tyranny of having to get it right. You can rest in Jesus' sacrifice. 
and you can see your light and momentary troubles in light of God's commitment to finish the good work that he started in your life. As with last week, let me give us a couple of minutes of space to reflect, to pray, to confess sin. And then this morning, we're going to receive the elements of communion. But before I invite the servers to come, we're just going to have some space to sit with the Lord uh, to reflect on what we've heard from his